Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. I quit my job today. I've spent almost seven years going to the same place at the same time on the same days of the week. Those seven years have been pretty lovely, and I feel so fortunate to have had what was a pretty great job. But getting too cozy is dangerous. Inertia is a stealthy predator. I quit my job today. I'm terrified. I'm thrilled. Here we go. As much as I wish those were my words, they are not. They are the words of Jay Austin at 28 years old. He and his girlfriend, Lauren Gogan, had been planning a trip for eight months. They planned to bike around the world, but they never made it home. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today's episode is a little different. I came across this case and was pulled in by the adventure this young couple took and the stories they told in life. Let me begin by telling you that Jay Austin was a wonderful writer. He kept a blog called Simply Cycling. It's uh, simplycycling.org. I will often quote him directly because he writes better than I do. Another great source I used is Outdoor Magazine's article, A Bike Ride Through the Garden of Good and Evil. In 2017, Jay recognized that he had a pretty good life in Washington, D.C., He had graduated from Georgetown University and worked in an office on the top floor of a 10-story building. He had great friends, and his job as a management analyst at the Department of Housing and Urban Development gave him a good salary and allowed him to carry out what he considered to be important work. But he felt like something was missing. For seven years, he'd done the same routine over and over, showing up to his meetings, filling out timesheets, and staring into his computer all the while regretting that his life was passing him by. He wrote in his blog, I've missed too many sunsets while my back was turned. Too many thunderstorms went unwatched. Too many gentle breezes unnoticed. There's magic out there in this great big beautiful world, and I've long since scooped up the last of the scraps to be found in my cubicle. He was considered unique in his office preferring to show up to work in a v-neck t-shirt and flip-flops instead of the typical jacket and tie. A co-worker said he was so outside of what most people think you should live your life like. Jay was lean, with short hair, and according to one cyclist who would meet him on his journey, he had the kind of smile that kids tend to lose when they grow up. Of course, he was athletic, but in an everyday way. He didn't exercise to compete. He exercised to explore and learn. He embraced a minimalist lifestyle, too. In 2012, at the age of 23, he moved out of his apartment and put his savings into a 145-square-foot tiny house. He did this to reduce his carbon footprint and eliminate his monthly housing costs. He was featured in Tiny House, Tiny Footprint, where he says he was paying more than $1,200 a month in rent for a space he didn't really like, one he didn't own, he couldn't modify, couldn't move, and didn't really take pride in. He put in a 30-day notice for his apartment and got ready to move into what he expected to be a finished tiny house. But progress had stalled, and he ended up moving into what was essentially a plywood box with no insulation, no electricity, 
no running water, and ended up pretty much camping in it for a couple months. His tiny home was on wheels and could be moved, but he mostly kept it stationary. He used the money he saved each month to take trips and travel around the world. He spent six weeks cycling through New Zealand. He rode his scooter across the United States, backpacked through Europe, spent a month in India, and cycled all over Morocco. According to Outside Magazine, his appetite for rugged exploration was rooted in his less-than-privileged childhood in New Jersey. He lived in an upper-middle-class town 50 miles south of New York City. While other parents commuted to their jobs in Wall Street and lived in homes with outdoor swimming pools, Austin's mother struggled to support her three children. As a newly single mother, she found work as a secretary and moved the family into a double-wide trailer in a section of Manalapan that had been set aside for affordable housing. Without the means for fancy vacations, she taught her children to appreciate the wonders of the world around them. She took them to beaches, art exhibits, and apple orchards, anywhere they could visit for free. On nice days, they'd climb to the top of a hill in a nearby park and spread out a picnic lunch. She told her children, you don't get happiness from money. You get it from being outdoors and appreciating the sunrises. As an adult, Jay enjoyed his solo lifestyle, but that was all before meeting Lauren. Lauren had long, dark hair and caring brown eyes, and she'd taken a more conventional path in her life. She grew up in Glendale, California, as the daughter to a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. She attended an all-private girls' academy before attending Georgetown College. After graduation, she took a job in the college admissions office and began socializing with a group of alumni that included Jay. She thought he was funny, fun, and provocative. Over time, their relationship turned romantic. Bicycling had always been a part of their relationship. At first, they'd bike around the city together and slowly expanded outwards, exploringly. Over the years, their ambitions increased, and in 2016, they rode around the perimeter of Iceland. When they came back home to Washington, they started dreaming of something bigger. Over Christmas of that same year, they told their family and friends that they wanted to quit their jobs and ride their bikes around the world. They didn't have a time frame or a set itinerary, but they knew they'd be gone for two to three years. They planned to start at the southern tip of Africa, head north into Europe, east into Central and Southeast Asia, then fly over to South America, and finally pedal home to the United States. Their budget was $600 a month, or an average of $23 a day. There would be no fancy restaurants or five-star hotels. Their friends thought they were crazy, but Jay and Lauren were ready for a change. Jay was a bit impulsive, so his friends were happy to have Lauren, a little more level-headed and pragmatic, accompanying him. Over the next six months, they researched countries along the route and created spreadsheets to track their budget and equipment. They wanted to go as lightly as possible in order to ensure their load was manageable. Carrying extra weight on their bikes for miles and over mountains was not something they wanted to do. They weighed everything in their backpacks, from their toothbrushes and underwear to their water bottles, down to the last ounce. As the date of departure approached, they were excited and nervous. Lauren was concerned about whether her body would hold up to the thousands of miles of cycling, but they were also worried about their safety. They believed people were good and kind in general, 
but they'd be on the road for years, and there were so many dangers. Things like wild animals, dangerous terrain, the inevitable bike crash, or an angry individual road raging. Jay was comfortable with those risks. He'd faced many of them here in the States, but he was concerned for Lauren. He wrote, When you love someone, you want to keep them safe. But when that person exists in a great, big, unpredictable world, it's impossible to keep them totally safe. I worry about something happening and not being able to stop it from happening, or not being able to do anything once it does happen. And that's not just a worry, it's a terrifying fear that outweighs all the preceding doubts and dread put together. They felt uneasy, but they stayed true to their plans. Just before leaving the United States for Africa, Jay would compare themselves to a ship at sea. He wrote, A ship is safest when it's at port, but that's not what ships are built for. The high seas are a dangerous place and an uncertain place. There are waves and weather and sea monsters, real and imagined. The ocean swallows up little boats without a thought. It's best, then, to stay in the harbor. But ships are not meant to idle in the bay. They're meant to cut through the waves and head towards the horizon. They're meant to sail, to catch the winds, to swim with whales by day, and follow the stars by night. If you leave a ship in the harbor too long, it'll start to rust. We set sail today, figuratively speaking. We lift our anchor and raise our sail and let the cool ocean breeze pull us from the safety of our familiar shore. We sail towards adventure. Maybe discomfort. Wish us luck. One week later, they would arrive in Cape Town, South Africa. The first three days, they'd be hosted by strangers they corresponded with online through warmshowers.org. This is a community that pairs people traveling by bicycle with those willing to host bike travelers. This community, along with the couchsurfing.com community, was the primary way they'd find shelter if they weren't camping or staying in the rare hotel. Days later, their adventure would begin. They started biking north toward Zambia. Along the way, they earned sunburnt lips and parched throats. They ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and spaghetti most days. They'd camp alongside the route, wherever they could find a quiet, out-of-the-way place. And this was essentially their life for the next 12 months. They alternated between kind strangers letting them sleep on couches or in spare bedrooms and sleeping on the ground in their quickly becoming worn-out camping gear. They made their way across Africa, occasionally battling intestinal issues, sometimes from the food and sometimes from overexertion. At one point, they were nearly run over by a herd of elephants. Between days of rest, they would cover distances sometimes greater than 100 kilometers or 60 miles in a day. In Zambia, Jay would crash, luckily not breaking anything, but certainly leaving scars. In Malawi, Jay writes, It starts very small. A tiny, pregnant mosquito lands on your arm. She pierces your skin with a terrifying six-pronged mouthpiece called a proboscis, which routes around under the surface for blood vessels to drink from. She finds one, and she drinks. She's gentle. This doesn't hurt. But every once in a while, she gives a little more. Inside her tiny body are even tinier little things, microscopic single-celled organisms that cause malaria. Untreated flu-like symptoms and fatigue can last for weeks or months. Luckily, both Lauren and Jay found treatment quickly, and days later, they were able to continue their trip. The stories they told were like salt and pepper. 
The salt was the people they met, the good times they had, the good weather and the downhill rides. The pepper was the hard times, the illness and the challenges they overcame. We need a little bit of both to make life more interesting. In December, five months and two weeks into their journey, Jay and Lorne arrived at the northern tip of Africa, hopped on a ferry to cross the Straits of Gibraltar. For safety's sake, they took a commercial flight from Tanzania to Morocco, skipping over several countries. Once there, they get back on their bikes and began pedaling into Europe. Along the way, they made hundreds of new friends. Some they rode along with, others were prearranged hosts, but many were complete strangers who opened their hearts and their homes or allowed the couple to camp on their property. But finding refuge wasn't always easy. As the sun set over the Spanish town of Algeciras, the couple struggled to find a place to stay. Police told them they weren't allowed to camp in town. A woman at a church refused to let them spend the night on the property. Their options were dwindling. It was three days before Christmas, and they were thousands of miles away from family and friends. They wandered the streets, pushing their bikes, when they came upon a park crowded with holiday partiers who were singing, laughing with friends, and sipping hot chocolate. The revelers' happiness made them feel sad, but then they heard a man's voice asking, "'Hey, do you need any help? Are you lost?' "'A little,' Jay responded. He tells the man who introduced himself as Pablo that they needed a place to sleep." Pablo is home for the holidays. He doesn't own a home here, but he offers the couple hot chocolate and pastries, and then asks his brother Miguel if Jay and Lauren can camp at his place. Miguel gladly offers up his home. The family went on to take Lauren and Jay out for dinner and drinks, all the while asking about their travels through Africa. Finally, exhaustedly, Jay and Lauren are allowed to bed down for the evening. One day passes, then another. They had fully intended to hit the road the morning after they met Pablo and Miguel, but they and their extended family would have none of it. After learning that Lauren and Jay had no plans for the holidays, Pablo and Miguel insisted they stick around and spend the holidays indoors with good people, partaking in Spanish traditions. For Lauren and Jay, it was a Christmas miracle. In a few short days, they'd grown very close to their adoptive family, but on December 26th, it was time for them to move on. The blazing African sun had been replaced by a nasty European winter, but even so, Jay and Lauren's burdens were eased by the kindness of strangers. In Spain, when Lauren's bike broke down during a snowstorm, Amanda and Ricardo came to the rescue. When they paddled through France, a Frenchman brought them to his house where they ate pizza, drank beer, and watched the Winter Olympics on TV. By April, they made it all the way to Montenegro where they met Lauren's parents for a 12-day vacation. It had been nine months since they had last seen their daughter. Lauren's parents brought bags and boxes full of supplies from America. It felt like another Christmas. Jay and Lauren had ridden thousands of miles through extreme conditions, going without the comforts of a mattress or a shower. Lauren had experienced health issues, including pink eye and an ear blockage that had muffled her hearing and sent her to the hospital. Of course, there were the expected relationship problems, too. These normal conflicts were intensified by the strain of traveling together for months on end and lack of restful sleep. Money was a big source of conflict. Jay kept a tight watch on their budget, while Lauren was more willing to splurge on occasional indulgences. Despite it all, 
Lauren would tell her mother that she wasn't ready for the journey to end. She was very proud of herself for being able to do what she did. From Montenegro, they headed east across the Balkan Mountains. They'd eventually make their way into Kazakhstan. They arrived in midsummer. There, they would meet a young couple that was preparing to bike the same route they were. Sophie Boyle was from England, and Nathan Berois was a Frenchman. They got along well and decided to tackle the mountains together. As they rode along, they headed toward the border of Tajikistan, hoping to make the border that night. It was later than they had planned to arrive, but they didn't want to turn down an invitation to join a family in their yurt for bread and tea earlier in the day. They were excited to enter a new country and climb a new mountain range. The border guard watched the group, loaded with supplies, but he was used to similar scenes. This route was legendary for cycling tourists and travelers on two wheels of all kinds. The border guard pointed up at the sky. He wanted them to note the rumbling black clouds overhead. They had a steep mountain ascent ahead of them. It would be grueling riding on a heavily loaded bicycle at the best of times, let alone during a storm. The guard encouraged them to wait. They felt cold and defeated, but there was a decent shelter nearby, essentially a roof on sticks. The wind picked up, and the snowflakes were starting to fall. They raced to put the tents up and unpack. Lorne and Jay's tent fit just under the roof and was big enough for all the cyclists to climb inside. They huddled together in their sleeping bags, waiting out the storm in what they laughingly dubbed the Party Palace. When the weather cleared, they were on their way. Jay would listen to Russian podcasts to learn the language. Lauren preferred Taylor Swift, who motivated her to climb the big hills. As a general rule, when they camped out, they aimed for discretion. They tried to make sure they were never in anyone's way, that they never left a trace, that they set up late and left early, giving no reason for any sort of confrontation. After a long day in the saddle, it was occasionally a struggle to find an inconspicuous spot to spend the night. It was harder traveling as a group because there were more tents. One night, they had just had enough time to put the tents up before it got dark. They noticed a 4 by 4 making its way toward them. They were worried they were going to be told to move on. The car rolled up beside the camp, and a whole family got out. A man, a woman, and two children walked over carrying a basket, a thermos, and an instrument. They spent the evening laughing and talking and listening to the family sing, even though there was a communication barrier. The family had seen the campers from their house above the river and immediately gathered up provisions to come down. They told the campers not to drink the water. It wasn't safe. They had brought a jerry can of fresh water, homemade bread and butter, and tea. It had been an incredible evening. Days later, they'd entered Tajikistan. Lauren's mother expressed her concern about the couple's plan to cycle through the country because of its proximity to Afghanistan. Lauren got online to look up the status of the U.S. travel advisory level on the country and found it at level one, exercise normal precautions. She took the time to reassure her mother that the country was safer than New York City. Tajikistan is an overwhelmingly Muslim country with a repressive government. Some of its citizens fought with ISIS in Syria, but unlike its neighboring Afghanistan, it had no history of terrorist attacks targeting Westerners. They felt safe with the locals, but worried more about the high mountains, altitude sickness, and the cold weather. 
Lauren struggled with elevation sickness. They'd even considered returning home for a while, although no final decision had been made. Lauren thought maybe she'd fly back to the States, see friends and family, maybe make some money, and then join Jay later in the trip. But she changed her mind. She didn't want to give up. She decided she'd ride through a lower elevation, splitting ways with the group they'd been traveling with. And of course, Jay would travel with her. They began riding with a Dutch couple, who were in their late fifties. They'd bumped into them several times along the route. Kim Postma had lived in a houseboat in Amsterdam with her longtime partner, Vene Wolka. On July 12th, the group came to another punishing 14,000-foot climb in elevation. Jay rode to the top, parked his bike, and then walked back down to help Lauren push her bike up the final incline. They all celebrated when they reached the summit. From there, they pushed towards the capital, where they dreamt of hot showers and a nice meal after the grueling ride through the mountains. Along the route, they'd met another couple, Marcus Hummel, 62, and Marie-Claire Diamant, 59. They would travel together, all six of them, over the next ten days, and they became close friends. They planned to rent an apartment together, go out for pizza, and enjoy nice bottles of wine once they reached their destination. But they never got there. Tragedy befell this group of six. Four would die, and two would be critically injured. Kim Postma recalled that the group had stopped at a gas station to refill their water bottles when a man in his thirties black hair and olive skin walked up to her. Unlike most of the other locals they'd met, he spoke perfect English and pointed out the vehicle, a Daewoo, he said he owned. He asked her what she thought about the country. What about the people? She felt like he was being pushy. The man then asked Jay where he was from, and Jay answered, the United States. The group then left the gas station and began pedaling along a quiet stretch of pavement overlooking a gorgeous hillscape. It was around 3.30 in the afternoon on a clear, calm day. Jay and Lauren were leading the group. Suddenly, the Daewoo plowed through the cyclists from behind. The force knocked Kim off her bike. When she looked up, she saw the other cyclists on the ground in front of her. Then several men jumped out of the vehicle and ran towards the already injured cyclists and began hacking at them with knives. "'They're killing us!' Marie-Claire screamed. Then, just as quickly as they appeared... They were gone, but not before circling around and intentionally hitting another cyclist. Jay had been stabbed 18 times. He lay helpless on the road, slowly bleeding to death. None of the wounds by themselves were fatal. Heartbreakingly, it was reported that he was still alive for 30 minutes after the attack. Lauren, Vinay, and Marcus also died in the ambush. That month, the world would learn that the man who had encountered the group at the gas station was named Hussein Abdusamadov. He was an ISIS extremist who had been reportedly ordered to execute an attack in Tajikistan. Hussein would tell the media that, Muslims are being killed everywhere. We must try to kill non-believers wherever we can find them. A few days before the attack, he was said to have been scouting the country to scope out possible targets. On his reconnaissance mission, he was quite a way north of the cyclists. Hussein had never visited that part of the country and was surprised that not many foreign tourists passed through. He made his way further south. His orders were that he and his partners couldn't touch the citizens of Tajikistan, 
They could only kill foreign citizens. On the morning of July 29th, he and four accomplices came across their prey as they were leaving town and heading in the direction of the capital. The group of five men followed the cyclists to the village of Celestine. Once there, they mowed down their targets. Two men had jumped out of the car with weapons and finished off the prone cyclists. Afterwards, they fled the scene, but not before running over at least one more victim. Fleeing, they headed south and reached the village of Tumbalak, where they decided to split up to avoid suspicion. Later that evening, Hussein and one of his friends would be caught there. His friend would be killed by the government forces. The other three men headed even further south, into a bone-dry canyon closer to Afghanistan. The plan was for all five to flee there. Government officials said this larger group was armed with bladed weapons. They were tracked down and shot while attempting to resist arrest. This account differs from journalists who spoke to locals who described a second scenario. They said sometime on the afternoon of July 30th, a man named Zarif Boltayev was out riding his horse. He had been working on a pistachio harvest. He said that around two or three in the afternoon, he spotted three men heading toward the mountains bordering the river that crosses to Afghanistan. These men were more like boys, really. If the picture provided in the media is the correct one, they look like they're in their late teens or early 20s to me. An alert had been raised about an unwanted group of criminals on the run. So the presence of the men provoked suspicion, and Boltayev decided to follow them. He waited until they came out of their place of hiding in the hills to find something to drink. When they did, he approached them and asked them where they came from and where they were going. The men had conflicting stories, which was enough to convince Boltayev, who then called the police. The locals insisted the men had been captured alive, although one looked like he'd been shot in the leg. On the evening news that night, televisions all over the world broadcast graphic images of four dead men lined up in a row, laying in an unidentified field. This visual documentation was not just grisly, but also strange, since one of the four had supposedly been killed several hours' drive away from where the others were said to have met their end. The public doesn't know for sure whether the men were actually killed. The trial was very secretive and was designed to keep as much information as possible from reaching the public. Parents and relatives of the defendants were denied the right to attend the entirety of the hearings. Diplomatic representatives from the United States and other victims' countries were likewise denied access to the hearings. Even worse, the survivors of the attack were not invited to the trial to provide witness testimony. Journalists were not permitted to follow the trial, forcing them to rely on leaks and confidential sources for a sense of what was happening behind closed doors. I know there are people out there who have lost loved ones overseas, and I can empathize with them. There are so many hurdles, distance, language barriers, costs to fly in and stay, let alone the differences in the way countries pursue criminals and the different trial processes. These are just a few of the issues they face. In this trial, during one session, it was reported that Hussein told the court that he regretted nothing and he was proud of what he had done. His mother, who was allowed to go into court on a couple of occasions, pled with him, in vain, to recount and beg forgiveness. Hussein would receive a life sentence. 
As the details of the murder spread, Jay's blog and Instagram were almost immediately attacked by hecklers and trolls. The adventurous couple were attacked for being young, naive, and even educated, as well as a myriad of other things. For Jay's mom, it was jaw-dropping, heartbreaking and devastating. She couldn't find the humanity in some of the people who left terrible messages. Friends and relatives closest to Jay and Lauren were determined not to let their friend's tragedy interfere with their view of the world. They preferred the lesson to be, the world is beautiful, and you can experience that beauty. Not the world is evil, so don't put yourself out there. In the blog, Jay and Lauren described the kindness and generosity of strangers around the world as they biked through Africa, Europe, and Central Asia. Yes, they had hard days, setbacks, and acts of cruelty by strangers, who threw things at them or tried to push them off their bikes. But they would write, Badness exists, sure. But even that's quite rare. By and large, humans are kind, self-interested sometimes, myopic sometimes, but kind, generous, and wonderful. No greater revelation has come from our journey than this. In a written tribute to the couple, Family and friends asked that readers carry on Jay and Lauren's legacy to be kind, inquisitive, and adventurous. They said, pursue your passions fully, and let others in on those passions, so that you can enjoy them side by side. I found the story to be beautiful, educational, and of course tragic. The murder of four world travelers in a seemingly senseless terrorist attack united several countries and an international biking community. Jay and Lauren left behind an amazing tale of their travels, one that's used as a resource for those who follow in their footsteps. Jay's last entry, in part, read, I feel at first in my lungs. They're tightening like air being sucked out of a paper bag, like my airways are filling with something they shouldn't be, something thick, like I need a certain amount of oxygen to live, and this isn't enough oxygen to live. He's talking about trying to breathe at altitude while inside a mountain tunnel. But I can't help but think that if he were to describe his physical feelings during his last moments on Earth, he may have used some of the same words. In the course of time, Jay's mother would pen a letter to Hussein, telling him that although she wasn't ready to say goodbye to her son, his killer gave Jay the greatest gift, to live in peace and eternity. Jay's spirit hadn't died. Only his physical body had. Jay and Lauren squeezed more into their short lives than many of us ever get to do in a lifetime. Had they lived, I feel sure that they would have brought so much joy to the world. I would like to have met them. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please do all the good things that help this podcast grow. There are links in the show description for social media where you can see pictures that go with this story. Thanks for taking time to spread the world about this podcast. Yes, I'm talking to you, Jennifer M., Camille, Megan E., Tracy P., Haiti S., and anybody I may have missed. I know I've got the best listeners in the world. To all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. <laughs>